We all want to feel better, be happier, and have more freedom. And there are endless resources at our fingertips. But wading through a sea of self-help books, podcasts, and workshops takes more time than anyone has. Except me. That's my job. I curate and translate the latest, most effective personal development wisdom to help you elevate your personal experience and improve the way you show up for others. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is Self-Helpful. How to Move from Fear-Based Thinking to Opportunity-Based Thinking by Imagining Your Death. I mean, nobody wants to consider their death, but if it gave you a massive paradigm shift that catapulted your success and joy, wouldn't you? I think we all would. This is not a live every day like your last message, as that's impossible. If this is your last day, you're going to put off anything that's not vitally important, and you just can't do that every day. It's not sustainable. This is different. My guest is Jordan Grummet. Jordan was an internal medicine physician who left clinical practice to devote himself to hospice care and deep conversations about life. Jordan walks with people who are given an end-of-life diagnosis, and he watches a phenomenon happen right before his eyes. Jordan says, we are all living versions of stories, but when a person is diagnosed with a terminal illness and death becomes a near future certainty, Something remarkable happens. The self-protective stories about identity, work, and money crumble, leaving them with clarity about who they are, what they love, and what really matters. He then cites they become free, as there's no reason to hold up pretense and no need to protect. Their focus shifts from fear of loss toward the possibility of what can still be gained, and people focus on true desires, generally for the first time. The tragedy is they didn't achieve this perspective long ago in their lives, which is why Jordan has taken his experience and written a book called Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. He's striving to help us leave our lives of self-protection and move to considering what is truly possible now, not when death is imminent and we have a short time to do what really matters. The Self-Helpful Podcast was founded through the Zig Ziglar Corporation. June 15, 16 of 2023, I'm going to be in Dallas to attend and speak at the Ziglar Coach Summit. And if you want to influence people for the better, I really encourage you to check out and consider attending this event. I'd love to spend some time with you face-to-face. You can see it at Ziglar, Z-I-G-L-A-R.com slash Coach Summit. And following these sponsors who help make the show possible and provide great resources for your life, I bring you Jordan Grummet and a discussion on the paradigm shift that occurs when we stop living from our self-protective selves. That's the message of his book, and it's called Taking Stock. And you can also find him on your podcast app right now at the Earn and Invest podcast. I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill 
bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Well, Jordan, it was a gift to talk with you on your podcast here recently and gave me some insight into you. I mean, you have a significant story. I just did a, I've got a paid community and we just did a call and talked about some of this. And, you know, for you to have come up out of childhood, your father dies, you take a child's errant view of what happened and why your fault is how you did it. And that directed you to commit to saying, I'm going to become a doctor like your father. And you went that path only to come into it as, okay, now, now you got the job and realize, and that is not the path that I want. And that's a great depiction, a platform foundation. Obviously it's why you started the book that way for your entire book. How often we find ourselves having gone through life to the point that we all are today, literally as, as folks are listening right now, as I'm talking to you and realize, wait, is this the path that I wanted to? Because your book, and I have to say, man, similar to mine at the foundation of it is trying to look at what on earth do we actually value? And it seems so ridiculous that we're so unclear on it. Yes. I think we're incredibly unclear on it. And the reason why is it's really easy to go through life doing what you're doing, taking societal and internal pressures and using them to drive you. But often we don't step back and say, well, why am I doing these things? And part of the reason is it's just really difficult work. Like, it's really easy to say, I'm going to be a doctor because my father was a doctor and decide that that's going to be my purpose in life. But it was a much harder thing to say, well, maybe what I was ascribing to my sense of purpose wasn't exactly what was fitting me as a human being. And so those are uncomfortable feelings. It's uncomfortable to really dig in there deep and say, what, what actually drives me as opposed to what's supposed to drive me? You have in your book, I don't remember what chapter, but you talk about, I think, your cha- I think it's titled or something about flattening uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I have not looked at that in a long time, Jordan. <laughs> and I looked at it And so I just had a weekend, an extended weekend with all of my kids uh, and their significant others at the house and talking about things. And I'm looking at the the hierarchy of need and, you know, down here at the foundation, the physiological needs, the breathing, food, water, shelter, the things that we go earn money for. And I'm thinking as a father for my kids, yeah, I want to flip it. What do I care about most for them? Self-actualization. Can we start there? And from that, it'll be much easier to do the rest off of that. And yet, as you talked about, I just hadn't thought about it in that way. We look at it as a hierarchy that could start off with, you know, get a good job, make money, buy your stuff, and then safety, security, let, you know, work our way up. And, uh, oh my gosh, that seems as, as profound as anything to say, we need to flip that. And yet you're seeing that we do ourselves a great disjustice by following along that. Yeah, you know, we're limiting ourselves by thinking it's this great pyramid, and only once you pass the initial steps 
can you move on to the other steps? And I get it, right? This idea of, well, I need to have shelter and I need to have warmth and I need to have clothes. These are really all the basics. But I think it's a mistake to say that because we haven't passed these beginning levels, we can't get to the later levels. I don't think it's as synchronous as that. And in fact, in many ways, it limits us because there's so many people out there who get caught in the basic needs and money struggle and use that as an excuse to not progress any further. And so you have people who can't seem to figure out what enough looks like when it comes to money, right? Yeah. They can't see, they know their basic needs of, yes, I need clothing and food and those kind of things. But in this outsized Instagram world we live in, you start convincing yourself that basic needs is beautiful vacations and high-end hotels and amazing cars. So we really get caught on what are our basic needs and start to forget about, well, what really looks like purpose in our life? What is self-actualization? When are we our best selves? If we wait forever to get to those supposed higher levels of the pyramid, we spend our lives doing a lot of things that feel a lot like necessities and not like living. And so I really love this idea of trying to flatten that pyramid. So why can't we worry about our basic necessities? Why can't we worry about food and shelter and those type of things? but also worry about meaning and purpose. And people look at me and say, well, that's really easy for you to say. You grew up in a privileged family and then you became a doctor and made a lot of money. So of course for you, you didn't have to worry about your basic needs. But you know what? Money is a tool that makes life easier, but it's not the only tool. And so we have lots of young people out there who are struggling to put food on the table. They're struggling to make enough money to pay for their heating bill, et cetera. But young people have different tools that older people don't. So when you're young, you might have more energy. When you're young, you might not have a mortgage yet. You might not have children yet. You might have other tools at your disposal. You might have your friendships and your passions and the communities you're part of. And if you learn how to leverage those things earlier, you can start flattening that pyramid and start working on things like purpose and meaning and identity now as opposed to waiting to some later date when you say, oh, I have enough. Now I can start thinking about those important things. Well, and you're also talking about it now. And that's the privilege of you haven't died yet. If you had died back before, you know, while you were still earning that money as a doc, it would have been a different story. And so to that degree... We're all grateful. We're privileged right now to be listening to this. We haven't died yet. Hopefully you have not gotten an end of life diagnosis or sentence at this point. And so we do have that privilege. You know, you talking about that, again, uh, Maslow's hierarchy, we recently had on, actually, I think it'll post, it may be the next show that posts after you is with Don Dapani. So he was a practicing you know, monk for, I think, a decade pretty much just sitting there doing self-actualization uh, first came out of that. And, and in a sense, you know, into the real world for the first time and has created, I don't know, this word has bad terminology, but he's created an empire, you know, what everybody would love to do. He's done that though on a hundred percent of knowing himself. I can't say a hundred percent, but a great percentage of knowing himself. We could say a similar thing with Jay Shetty. So we're doing a podcast here. Jay Shetty's got one of the biggest ones out there. It's called On Purpose. He was a monk also. That's part of his story. I think his first book is Think Like a Monk, I believe. But again, 
an interesting look at people who made self act flipped it made self actualization the initial thing without really addressing i mean they were you know in monasteries so they had food and shelter but that was pretty much it uh got out of that with their self actualization and their stories are dramatic and that is a, maybe an exaggerated depiction of us in regular world doing the exact opposite and unfortunately, probably never coming to self-actualization. Yes. Yeah. And you've had Ken Honda on your show, Ken Honda, happy money. You know, he talks about the same idea. You know, we can build wealth to become who we want to be, but the other side of happy money is when we're being who we want to be, it naturally draws money and wealth and riches towards us. And so that's the whole idea of, you know, Building your empire by living a life true to yourself speaks to this idea of that's actually how we serve ourselves, our money, and other people is we live to our best purpose and identity, and that creates a whole different kind of wealth, but also a monetary kind of wealth. And so we see this over and over again, people who, when they found out who they were and what drove them, what looked like purpose in their life, they actually were able to monetize that in a much healthier way. And I find myself, uh, see what you think about this. I find myself wanting to say, okay, those who are more self-actualized as they go into a vocational vehicle will make statistically more money. So tell me what you think about that one, because on the other hand, I'm saying, or who cares? They're probably just happier, which is the point of the money anyways. So play with that. So Self-actualization is a great term. I use purpose, identity, and connections, but they're all this same idea of living a life of purpose. I think when you have a good idea of what purpose and identity look like in your life, you tend to bring that into the activities you're involved in. Yeah. And because you do that, you tend to perform better. You tend to draw people towards you. You tend to build community. I think that naturally creates physical wealth. But I think it also creates emotional wealth. So you do get to the point where you're like, I'm not as worried as long as I can pay my bills. I've actually gotten to self-actualization. I am living a life that is full of purpose and identity. And if you get there, the real purpose of money is to support that. So if you flip it around and you start with purpose and identity, your monetary needs are not nearly as high. Right, Because money is a tool that allows you to live this life you want to live. If you can build that life you want to live, the amount of money you really need to support that becomes much less. And you have some acute examples of that in your book, and you kind of juxtapose that. The one guy who didn't really create any financial uh, you know, legacy, didn't have, didn't have money, but made it to the end and had so much wealth of, as you said, emotional uh, health and, or emotional wealth. And then somebody else who devoted themselves, had lots of money and had none of that. And you weren't making a better or, but just, I mean, the, the happy place, I guess, would be in the middle. And the happy place, again, is the flattening Maslow's pyramid right. is that we are working on both, right? We're building purpose, identity, self-actualization. But at the same time, that doesn't preclude us from being smart with our money and building a financial foundation around that. So again, I want to demolish that pyramid and I want us to be working on all of those things simultaneously because ultimately they should all support each other. 
Do you find, just back on that one question, though, the folks that are more in tune, I mean, I don't know if a study's been doing, but they're more in tune with themselves and go in vocationally with that in mind, I would want to say that there's got to be a result of they're just happier with their day-to-day doing something that they enjoy that fits their own purpose and, and, and who they are. Do they, how does that pan out on a monetary scale though? Would you say that, yes, statistically, they are probably going to earn more money or maybe they're just going to handle it better. How does it pan out there? So I think it's a slippery slope to say more money. I'd rather define it as do they earn enough money to support their sense of purpose and identity, which is really the goal of money is to use it as a tool to do those things that are important to you. So I don't like looking at the amount. It's more of a question of enough. Do they have enough money to live out the lives the way they want to? We have these limited slots of time throughout our life, right? Life, you know, time can't be commoditized. Time is consistent and persistent and it passes no matter what you do. So how do you win the game of life, in my opinion? The way you win the game of life is you fill up as many of those time slots as possible with things that support your sense of purpose and identity. So going back to that question, people who are more self-actualized or more understand their sense of purpose and identity tend to spend more of their time doing things that support that, whether that's work for money, whether that's employment, whether it's community building, whatever it is. And so I'm not really worried about how much money they make as long as they have enough money for the basics. What I'm really worried about is, does your money act as a tool to allow you to utilize those time slots in such a way that you're doing activities that are fulfilling to you? And so I think people tend to be more at peace with their money when they better understand what drives them and then bring that knowledge into their everyday activities. But the actual numbers, who knows, right? Because what's wealth to one person is not wealth to another person anyway. And it's interesting. I, I it was started this off saying, I don't know if we're going to talk about money that much, but now I'm interested. Uh, you know, because because when you look at it, so here you are in in your palliative care. You know, work with somebody who's got a you know a death sentence in essence. In essence, I mean, it's they're not going to keep going. How many of those really find themselves in dire straits financially? Meaning, or, or or would they tend to look at themselves and at that point go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I wasted so much time or stress on money. It didn't end up being that, you know, I, I'm here. I, we paid the mortgage apparently. I didn't end up homeless on the street. Why did I put that? Is that fair? Is that a fair look at it? I would say that the majority of people at the end of life worry less about how much money they made and more worry about did they do those things that were important to them. There is, excuse me, there is a small percentage of people who really do worry about money, right? Because they did end up in dire straits. They didn't have enough money to support the care they needed. But ultimately, even those people, a lot of the times the focus isn't on money. It's that they didn't have enough money to kind of live out those last days the way they wanted to, to connect with those people they wanted to connect with, to do those things they wanted to do. So money often becomes a proxy for those other things But yes, there certainly are. And that's why we want to flatten Maslow's pyramid, but not abolish it. Because you do want enough of a financial framework to support yourself in order to live the best life and hopefully die the best death you can. But the grand majority on their deathbeds, they're not saying, I wish I worked more. They're not saying, I wish I had a higher net worth. 
They're saying, I really regret that I had these things that were insanely important to me and I never spent the appropriate time, energy, or will to actually live those things out. And that's where people really feel the regrets. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to 100 times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Okay, so let's go, let's go to that deathbed, that regret. So as I talked about, I, I was with a group of people this morning uh, talking about you, talking about this topic, just because I wanted to play with it before that. And what I feel you, you know, calling us to, I mean, you literally do this in the book, you know, end a chapter with, hey, think through these things. That we normally don't think through, uh, probably period, unless you have the, uh, not a privilege, I guess, but you know, these people that you are with who are, who are told you have a very finite time, you know, it could be a week, a month, a year, whatever it is, and this is the end and it, and it makes a change in them. Well, you know what? Let's just start there. Cause that was interesting. That was more than interesting. It was hugely profound. You saying that your experience with these people is when they get that diagnosis and Bob, you've got a week, a month, a year, two years, whatever, um, pretty quick that you see a, 
a little, I would say a change of face. It's more than that. You see a dramatic, well, just tell us because that change, I, I want people to hear this because it hit me and uh, holy smokes that you see this radical change from fear-based to, and I'll let you say it. Yeah. So let's look at it this way. Life is finite. We all know that, but we certainly don't like to admit to it. Yeah. And I'm going to say something that isn't intuitive. I'm going to say because life is finite and we don't like to think about it, we spend a lot of time not doing the important things. Because to think about the important things is to realize life is finite. I might fail. I might never get there. It's much easier to do what society wants us to do or to do what we think we have to do to survive or get stuck in those lowest rungs of Maslow's pyramid and so we concentrate a lot on money and career and moving up the corporate ladder, whatever it may be for you. And it's really easy to focus on those things because they're really, really knowable. Like, I know how to make more money. It may not be easy, but I have a good idea. I know how to move up and become a partner in my law firm or become a partner in my medical practice. All of those things can be plotted out. So it's really safe and comfortable and easy to think about those things. And society applauds us thinking about those things. So we often do. What we don't do is think about those really hard things that aren't clear. Like, who am I? What does purpose look like in my life? If I were to find out I was going to die tomorrow, what would I want to make sure that I got accomplished? That stuff is scary. There are no concrete answers. And as opposed to doing that really hard work, we go for the low-hanging fruit, which is what most of us do, which mm -hmm. is we live our lives, make as much money as possible, we take a few vacations here and there, and we tell ourselves we're too busy to do anything else. Well, guess what happens when all of a sudden someone says, you know what? You've got six months to live. Yeah. All of a sudden, it gives you permission to drop all that, right? You can't be afraid of dying anymore that life is finite because guess what? You've just been told your worst fear that indeed the end of life is coming and it allows you to drop all of societal expectations, personal expectations. And for the first time in your life, you can sit there and say, boy, I'm dying soon. What is utterly important to me? What are those things that if I don't do... I'm going to really regret. What haven't I accomplished yet? Who are those people who are important in my life that I've lost track of, that I've been always meaning to get back in touch with, but I haven't? It's an epiphany. And so the first thing is a huge amount of mourning of the loss of the time you thought you had. Yeah. But the next thing that happens is, okay, I've got a certain amount of time left. How do I best utilize this time? And it's in that acknowledgement I only have a certain amount of time left. How do I best utilize this time? What if we could have that epiphany much earlier? Like not when we have six months or two years or even five years. What if we could start thinking about those things in our 20s or 30s or 40s and start working on those deep, important things now? Dying gives us permission to do that. But the really silly question is, why don't we give ourselves permission to do that much earlier? And the simple answer is because it's hard <laughs> and painful and we might fail, and life is finite, and it feels really bad to think about that, so let's ignore it. The dying don't have that privilege anymore of ignoring it. They know that it's now or never, and so they go through this and think about it. Okay. Uh, yeah, ultimately, I mean, as you talk about it, and as I read in your book, it feels asinine that we don't. <laughs> and you're saying that it's hard work. Yes, and I'm also thinking we're just not taught 
It feels like a grand ignorance. I mean, even with my own children, we have them go to school, get good grades, get out. And what do you do? Get a job, something to support yourself. When do we take the kid and go, hey, wait, 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 before grades, before sports, before going to get a job, whatever, do you know yourself? And what do you care about? We, we've done recently, Jordan, a series on the Enneagram, on understanding mm-hmm. you know, yourself and so many things of why is this not paramount in schools or, or just as parents with our kids to go back, at the, back to the self-actualization. What, what, are you, what is your bet, the, the biblical term, what is the way you were bent? Let's figure out how Johnny or Betty is bent and have understanding for that. And we don't do it. And I I appreciate your statement of our cultural concept of being afraid of death. And you said much more than that, it seems to, and you were just speaking that it seems that we are afraid of life. Here we are. We got one fragile shot. We don't want to screw it up. So we play it safe and we play as you, again, as you said before, we live in a self protective mode that generally we just stay in all of our life. If we have the quote, I know it's a goofy saying privilege of being told, Hey, you've got six months, then you've got a short span of time to go, okay, wait, without that fear, how do I live? And you're saying, Holy crap, why can't we come back here and do that and have 50 years of living that way? Yeah. I mean, we don't talk about death and we don't talk about money, but how the hell are we supposed to live a good life? If we can't talk about death, because only with the perspective of death, can you really look back and say, boy, these were the things that were important that I didn't accomplish. We don't like to talk about money, but how do we talk about living a good purposeful life unless we can build a financial framework that supports that? Money is an important tool. It's not the end all, it's not the be all. My goal for the people I work with is that money is something that they eventually don't have to think much about it. But at first you do, because you have to build that financial framework so that you can support those things you want to be doing today and tomorrow. Because the goal is that when you get told that you have six months to live, your epiphany is not, oh my God, there's so many things that I didn't do. Your epiphany is, I'm glad I was thinking about this for the last few decades and built a life I could be proud of. And people tend to die like they live. So if you lived a really peaceful life, you tend to die a peaceful death. Hmm. The people who I see die the most peaceful deaths are the people who put the work in to live the peaceful lives in the first place. I'm curious, Jordan, with the perspective of, because it, it, it finds us, okay, everybody sitting there, we're supposed to think, okay, if you were given that diagnosis, you got six months to live, or you got six years, whatever, but you're told it's going to happen here, which I think is terrifying for most people to even, to even think of. Really, though, it should be irrelevant. That should be an irrelevant thought. Because we should be sitting here going, regardless if, if I'm going to live another year or if lo and behold, I'm going to be the oldest person ever, you know, in a long time and I'm going to live a hundred more years. I'm going to live to 152. Regardless of that, why on earth would I not ask these questions now? And again, I'm, I'm think, thinking of my kids. Why am I not making that priority above their grades, above their sports, above anything to say, look, to the best that we can, understanding a kid who's young hasn't experienced much, it, it's harder to get as far, far along and understand them understanding themselves. But we can look at their predispositions, their propensities, their personality styles, introvert, extrovert, whatever it may be, the things that they just initially, I've got a kid right now who's he's 13 and he wants to, he wants, he wants to know the stock market. 
He wants to understand money. And he did not get that from me, Jordan. I'm so sorry to say. <laughs> He's more likely to be an athlete coming from me or to write books or something like that. But that's just innate uh, you know, to him. I need to honor that and train him up in the way that he is bent. And again, flatten that, flip that, whatever, Maslow's hierarchy but it is. It seems like a. a again, I, I want to label it like the grand tragedy. And we built a society this way. I mean, look at the way we look at retirement. Yeah. Everyone thinks of retirement as I'm going to work. I'm going to suffer. Yeah. It's going to be horrible. I'm going to put in my thirty years or whatever it is, and then I'm going to retire to these visions of travel and golf and all these things that we're supposed to love and that we're supposed to want to do. Like, that sounds kind of miserable, waiting until I make it to 60 or 70 to do all those things I want to do. Why wouldn't I want to do those things now? (laughs) Why are we putting this stuff off? And with looking at chronic illness disease, to me, it's incredibly arrogant that I think that I'm going to get to that point and then still have my health and wellness and mental capacity, which is, you know, better than anyone. So often they get to that point. Okay. Now I'm there and man, I don't have the energy or the wherewithal to even experience it. And and it just, again, it seems, it seems ludicrous. Yeah. That we look at that. And, and with that on retirement too, it's such a stark contrast, Jordan. And I'm sure you see that if I look at the, you know, 200 plus books of the people I've had on the show, like you, (laughs) none of them are really even considering retirement. They're, they're doing what they do. Why on earth would they stop doing that? They may go have, uh, we had Arthur Brooks on the show recently and he said, uh, he's, he's, uh, at this point in life, he's just binging on experiences. He's got the money, he's got the time to do that. But to retire, man, he's already, you know, he's looking for his next book and his next pursuit. So it still seems, I mean, I know we all, we hopefully have heard that retirement is kind of a made up thing to begin with, but now it seems mostly prevalent because we are not living lives we enjoy. So yes, can we just grind it out as long as we can until we can stop? And then, and then what? And of course you have so many stories of people then going to, I, they don't know what the heck to do anyways. Mm-hmm. It's the great escape myth. Hmm. It's we're all working towards getting to that great escape. Unfortunately, if you don't build the foundations of a good life earlier on, you eventually get to a point where you maybe have the financial ability to escape, and yet you have no idea where you're escaping to because you never built a life to retire to. And so I agree with you. Most people I know who learn how to become very engaged in their lives no longer really speak in terms of retirement, what they really find is that they they get more financially secure. They just have more control over how they pursue their passions and interests. So sometimes it's a little bit less fevered or sometimes they treat themselves to more days off or they say, boy, instead of working and getting that book written in six months, I'll write it in a year or two years. So the pressure comes off a little bit as they grow and have more financial stability. But very few people who I know who really do some of this purpose and identity work, as, especially as young or middle-aged people, very few of them really start looking towards retirement. What they're really saying is, how do I fill up as many of those time slots doing things I love to do? And in the meantime, sometimes those activities produce money. And so are they retired? Are they not retired? That extra money they make, maybe that allows them to keep doing what they like doing. Maybe it allows them to go first class instead of coach when they fly somewhere. Maybe it gives them a few extra weeks of vacation or an extra bedroom on that new house they buy. But the point isn't the money. The point is they're, they're actually taking a very limited 
thing, which is the amount of time they have and utilizing it in ways that fulfill them. I mean, your story's significant, Jordan, of coming to that, you know, you go to medical school, go in as a doctor, realize that's not really what you want to do, but you're invested in it now. So you try different variations of it, but you're in there, you're making money, and then you get this financial exposure to financial wisdom, do the numbers and at whatever point realize you're good. You're good. You don't really have to work for money, uh, which would most people think it'd be kind of like Dave Ramsey's people being debt free. I'm debt free. You know, <laughs> I, I don't have to, I don't have to work for money. And you get to that point and it should be a rah, rah, re and you're like, holy smokes. I, I, I don't even know what I desire. And, and then you, you extrapolate on that later in the book with people who once they, if money is the goal, once they reach it, there is, there is no purpose if that's it. So money in and of itself is, in, in some senses, you know, above the survival is probably, could there be a more meaningless goal? Fair? Not only a more meaningless goal, a more difficult goal. Because the problem is when you look at money as your goal, one of two things happens. One is you reach your goal and you are excited and overjoyed for a moment until you all of a sudden feel that loss of what to look forward to. Yeah. And so what half the people do is they ultimately immediately double down and say, oh, well, I reached the million dollars and now I'm feeling kind of empty. So let's go for two million. And that keeps them busy again until they get to two million. Then they feel empty again. And then it's four million, et cetera. So half the group does that. The other half gets to their goal of one million dollars, let's say, as a net worth and then becomes petrified because they think the stock market's going to change or something's going to happen and they're going to lose it. So this idea of loss aversion, you're doubly as scared of losing what you've worked so hard to gain than you are of never gaining it. So if money is your goal, you're most likely going to find yourself unhappy. And that's what happened to me. I got to the point where I had enough money and I realized that medicine wasn't fulfilling me and it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for a few reasons. One, I would say three reasons. One was it was the last wisp of connection I had to my father who had died when I was a little boy. And I had to, you know, contemplate walking away from this identity that connected me to my father, even though it no longer fit me. It was still that connection. So it was heartbreaking because of that. Two, it was heartbreaking because I was really good at it, Kevin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In fact, better at being a doctor than I am at being a podcaster or a writer or any of those things. This is probably the thing that I am best at in the world at doing. And yet it wasn't fulfilling me. So no matter how good I was at it, it didn't feel good anymore. So I had to walk away from it. And then the last reason it was heartbreaking is I had built this whole life of purpose and identity that no longer fit me and had no idea who I was. And so for me, it was an incredibly emotional moment that was supposed to be joyful and that turned into being panic-filled and depressing because all of a sudden I had to face these demons that I had been putting off for a long time. Okay, you brought up three big issues there to me. Uh, one on that aspect of, you know, it, when is enough enough and our tendency to, even if they you get to that goal to think, oh gosh, I got, I got to do more and double down on that. Let's, let's overlap that with Arthur Brooks. Again, we just had him on the show and his book, Strength to Strength, that you're doing that in the capacity that you know that you are getting tired of. You're working in that fluid knowledge. So now you're thinking you need to double down. And you, you're, I mean, of course, his research is your brain is actually shifting away from that opportunity. It doesn't mean that you can't go make money and have great achievements, 
but maybe not. It's going to be harder and harder in that same capacity, which generally is going to be all you knew. This is what you did for money. That's all you know how to do for money. And you're now trying to double down and you are waning from that ability. So you got a double negative going here. That's it's exhausting. It's exhausting. That's what they call these treadmills, right? Bur- these there's, are treadmills. there's burnout, one of our big words, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're you're running so fast, and you're in what I call overdrive. You're trying to go faster and faster, but your wheels are spinning, and you're not getting anywhere. Yeah. And so all you're doing is you're wasting energy, fuel, whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, but you're not moving forward. And, and no, no wonder you just want to stink and retire. Can I just, this is miserable or it's getting more miserable. Well, the other thing you bring up then is, and I'm going to, I'm going to use it to purpose where you said your uh, number two on your own journey there was you were really good at it. It was, it was, we didn't say misery, but it was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking is what you use. Heartbreaking work, um, taking its toll. And yet you were really good at it. So back to, again, if we look at money, how many people, let's go back to kids, especially, Oh, uh, you know, little Sammy is really good at math. So we're going to push him that direction. Uh, he becomes an accountant and he is, he's good at it, hates it, but he's good at it. And that culture, I keep coming back to that, our cultural propensity to pursue and to push people in ways that they are good at. And we don't question Do they find joy in it? And here's the funny thing. So let's actually dissect my statement. I said, Kevin, this is the thing I'm best in the world at doing. Well, guess what? I went to college, medical school, did residency, and spent 80 hours a week doing this for 20 years. Of course, this is the thing I'm best at in the world. I've dedicated my whole life to it. What if we change that narrative and said, well, you have a propensity to do math, but you really love writing. What if I had put that same time into being a podcaster or a journalist? Or what if I had gone after something completely different in high school? By the time I had accrued as much practice as I have at being a doctor, I'd probably be pretty darn good at those things too. Yes, we have some proclivities, right? There's certain things some people are good at by nature or better than others. But the truth of the matter is it was an expectation that made no sense. Yeah. I shouldn't have expected to be automatically good at these other things that I wanted to pursue in life. I hadn't spent nearly as much time or energy trying to do those things. Uh, but, it, it, you know, we, we have a hard time with kids because we say, ah, you look like you're good at math. So what do we tell them? Do more math. And then they feel good about math. So when they're studying, they probably study more time math because they were told they were good at it and that's something they should do. And it pushes them in that direction we are actually sometimes causing these things as opposed to them being someone's actual natural ability. That I think some of it's just happenstance. A teacher in elementary or first grade says, hey, you added those numbers really good. You're, you're good at math. And then yeah. goes and tells the person's fam- parents they're good at math. Yeah. That can start a whole pattern that may have nothing to do with the person's innate abilities. Jordan, it's a sore spot for me because I've got, so I was a, you know, I was a pro athlete and I saw my kids come up. None of them real interested in sports, finally had one and we have him in running and the dude's just unbeatable. He just wins everything. And, you know, we live 20 miles from the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. And I'm thinking, here's my guy, here's my Olympian. (laughs) And, uh, long story short, he, 
he hates it. He hates the pressure. He hate, he just does not like it at all. Uh, we tried to we tried to work on his attitude around it. Buddy, don't push yourself so hard. You know, you don't have to win. Get tenth. You know, whatever. And and try to play around with it. But ultimately, he said, if I'm going to get in the in the race, I can't not push myself. And the pressure to do it is. I he said I hate it. And so he's not doing it. And I'm I'm looking at it, or I have a hard time going. Oh my gosh, what a waste, right? <laughs> Right. And in the propensity for us to push him along that, for him to find success. Now he's devoted years to it. Of course, he's great. Maybe he ends up in the Olympics and he hates it. Reminds me of uh, a lot of people know Shalene Johnson. She's a big uh, personality in the health, wellness and fitness arena. And she had a daughter who that's what happened to her. And finally, her daughter quit it. And she wrote a book and it was called something like I effing hate to run. And there's some, you know, movement behind that. But you're right. Our propensity to push people on there. And then, well, let me go to my next point though, that you brought up. And then our identity becomes wrapped around that. And how can we leave something that that's what, like right now I'm a podcaster and author, right? That's my identity. So what happens if I'm not those things? What happens if I am in an accident and lose my voice, can't use my hands, you know, whatever it is and brings us back to self-actualization again on to use Maslow's deal. And is our identity I guess we would say intrinsic or extrinsic. Is it is our identity something we know internally? It exists in here, in Kevin, or is it simply attached to, well, to what you said, to what I do, which for most people is their work, yeah? I believe that it's somewhat intrinsic. And I think even purpose in us is somewhat intrinsic. And we know this, right? Because we hear whisperings throughout our lives of things we want to do. And often we ignore them or tell ourselves that we can't do those things and then move on. But if you're lucky enough to go back and have the time and space or be doing some of this purpose work, you often come back to them. I realized when I was a kid, I loved sports and I loved collecting things. And so for a long time, I collected stamps and then coins and then baseball cards. Mm-hmm. And I loved collecting baseball cards. And as I grew up and I moved, I stopped watching sports, stopped watching baseball altogether, stopped collecting things, moved on to becoming a doctor, eventually got interested in personal finance. Now I'm a podcaster, a writer. I do all these kind of things. You know what I realized the other day? Hmm. When I'm scrolling through Facebook, Somehow Facebook's algorithm realized that I like looking at baseball cards Mm -hmm. and now all these baseball card auctions come up. And every time I pass one of those ads, I get this warm, good, nostalgic, wonderful feeling. And I've been ignoring this for so long. I love baseball cards. I love collecting things. And that is part of my identity. And I've tried for so many years to not pay attention to it and do other things but I'm starting to feel those whisperings again of seeing things and a clicking and saying, ah, that was important to me. And it still is important to me. I think we have those whisperings. Like when I was being a doctor and I was busy and I was doing doctorly things and building my practice, I would try to escape for 30 minutes here, an hour there. And I'd write, and I started a medical blog and I wrote for 15 years about medicine on this blog. I didn't even edit it because I never had time. So I'd go and I'd write for 30 minutes in between patients and I'd just post it. And I convinced myself that that's something you can't do for a living. That's not something that you, that's like a hobby. And being a doctor is what you do. That's what your identity is. 
And I finally started listening to those whisperings and say, why am I always trying to get away from being a doctor to write? Why do I always want to interrupt my schedule to go public speak? Like, why are these things so innate to who I am? And I keep on trying to push them away because I've told myself that that's not part of who I am. I think we all have these things. Yeah. We all have these parts of our purpose and identity that, that whisper to us. And I think have since childhood. I think when we were kids, we felt more free to pursue them because we didn't have as many rules. Yeah. And as we get older, we start feeling all societal pressured rules and we stop listening to those whisperings. I think some of that, back to your question, I think some of identity and purpose is innate to us and we stop listening. I think we listen a heck of a lot more when we're little kids. Yeah. And I think as we get older, we stop listening. And so part of the goal when you go back and start doing some of this purpose identity work is to start really saying, well, what are those whispers that have followed me throughout my childhood and adulthood and, and I haven't listened to? It brings up a point that you lead off the book with of our concept of you only live once and you debate that and say, no, I see that we live many times. We live many lives throughout our lifetime. We die once. And that's the one thing we need to keep on. We die once, but we live once. And yeah, that propensity for people to go, ah, you know, I missed that window. And I do really love the stories, the cliche stories. I, I, I had a good friend who did that. She was in the corporate world, worked for Hewlett Packard, very successful. And she realizes in her late fifties that the thing she does well is counsel people. She's doing it with her employees, her coworkers, and she's the one they come to to work through things. It often gets personal. And she realizes her joy is that. That's the bigger joy than the whatever she, I don't even remember what she did. And she went, crammed a four-year, I think a four-year counseling degree in, in the two years, working part-time, something like, something like that. What goes back. And at the age, I think 58, 60 or something like that, opens, puts her shingle out and opens a counseling practice. And it has been going great. She's she's done it, built it up, moved, built up another practice. And what a change that we, again, come back here. This is what I've done. This is what I'm good at. I've invested so much, which again, you're the poster child of being at the worst case scenario, medical school, the amount of time and money to put in that. How on earth could you walk away? Of course, the tragedy though is, again, going back that you did not have that back to Maslow, that self-actualization earlier if you had. So wherever we are, whether we're listening to this right now and you're 65 or whether you're 25, which would be awesome, this is the time to do that and not count yourself short on the time. Get ready to live another life is what you would say. You know, it's funny as I'm listening to you, you, you brought up the C word cliche and I, I, I it's, it's a funny story. I went to give an interview with a popular podcaster and he heard my story and he's like, okay, well, let's get past kind of all the cliched stuff. And I was kind of like, what do you mean cliche? That's the best stuff. <laughs> and well, well, see, this is the thing. So yes, it is a cliche. Like yeah. one day you're going to die. So you better start thinking about now and live for today because tomorrow isn't promised. So yeah, that is a cliche. A, yes, it is the best stuff because no matter how much of a cliche is, we still continuously need to hear it because we're not listening to the lesson. That's part of it. The other part, which maybe isn't part of the cliche is 
even when you're dying, it's not too late. I've seen people do these life reviews when they're dying and still make those important connections that they had let drop or still find ways to at least come to peace with their regrets. So it's never too late. There's always some things you can do to bring yourself peace. But the message I really want to give people is that we need to stop putting money as the excuse that we fall to this cliche because ultimately it's the excuse everyone has is I don't have the time, energy, or more importantly, money to do this. I need to make more money. I need to go higher up the corporate ladder. I need to do all these things. I don't have the time or energy to think about this now because I'm too busy making money. So I guess the, what the advice that I want to give that isn't cliched is you can build a financial framework that allows you to do all this and money shouldn't be the reason that you're putting off things. Money shouldn't be the reason that you're not learning about your own sense of purpose and identity now. I want to talk about regrets. I've always played with the term, and in my book, I reference Bronnie Ware, the hospice nurse. She's an Australian hospice nurse. Yep. Her book is the, uh, it's Casey now, the Five, five regrets bed, of the dying. Yeah, deathbed regrets. So I gave that focus and, and, and mentioned it in my book just to bring the relevance and importance of, of some of the issues that we care about on our deathbed. Now, it was interesting, though, to probably a year ago, Jordan, I had Dan Pink on the show, and his last yep. book is The Power of Regret. And he felt like his research was a little different because on deathbed regrets, those are people who are regretting things that a lot of times they don't have time to address at this point. It's just a regret that they're going to die with. His research is over here with you know people of, of lots of different ages who have uh, time to deal with those. And you've, I feel like you're playing the, your experiences now is with the deathbed regrets and you're trying to bring it back to us who are not on our deathbed and to look at what do we and it is a powerful term, regret. There's a lot of negative baggage on that. There's guilt and shame. How do you, how do you, because I mean, we don't want to, you're not bringing people to go, okay, right now, if you died, what are you ashamed of? You know, what do you regret? <laughs> but that has a lot of power. I mean, if you're talking back, you said emotional wealth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we do with the dying patients, we do a life review, right? So okay. a life review is a structured series of questions where we go through the main events in their lives, what they accomplished, what they didn't accomplish. And part of that are regrets and what they think they can improve before they die. All of that's part of the life review. So I very much think we need as young people to do a life review also. And I think part of that life review, I mean, you can, you can cut the life review, which can be as much as 15, 20, 30 questions. You can turn it into one question, which is, if I were to find out that I was going to die in the next six months, what would I regret never having the energy, courage, or time to do? So that's like the one-sentence life review. So I very much think we do have to frame these questions that way. And the reason why is we need something to cut through all of the personal and societal pressures that push us towards things that don't matter. And so as I was saying before, the dying automatically have that happen when they get their terminal diagnosis. It pushes all the BS out of the way, at least briefly. We need some trick to do that in young people. The best I can do 
is that life review or that sentence. But we need something to clear the cobwebs enough to say, okay, I'm afraid that life is finite and I'm afraid that I'm going to die and not accomplish those things I want to do, but I'm going to put that fear aside so that I can actually start thinking about what those things are and start acting on them now. And so that's the only way I really know, and that's why I wrote this book, because I feel like we need to use that as a tool to get to these deeper conversations with ourselves. You, you again, brought up the point we talked about just a little bit ago, but it, it, it's weighing on me, I guess, Jordan, that you're saying we, because you've seen it so starkly, that we are, most of us listening right now, including me, have a, on the spectrum of fear, we are living in a fear-based, self-protective modality. And we just are. And we pretty much do our entire lives. And yet you have the distinct privilege of seeing people and you get to flip the switch. Boom. You're going to live for six months. Pow. There goes the self-protective nature, the fear-based. And now I've got, like I woke up. It's like I woke up. That's the message. I mean, I'm thinking about for myself and to my kids. Okay, guys, this is the culture. This is the culture you live in, I mean, we, and we, which we should be able to see. I mean, look at the headlines today. Is that not a fear-based, self-protective culture? This is not an abundant mentality that we are living in. And if we can, as you try to bring us to at the end of your chapter, say, okay, everybody stop. Take a minute. Think through this stuff. It, it's, it, it is. It's, it's almost like the, uh, the matrix, you know, the red pill is what you're, you're driving us to, towards. Uh, definitely. And I I do. I want it to be a wake up. It needs, in a sense, to be kind of harsh. And that's that's what a life review, in a sense, is. And that's what, unfortunately, being told you have a terminal diagnosis is, is it's a harsh wake up and and a reality. Um, With the dying, we have to make the last minute plot twist that fixes everything, right? If they do come to regrets, we have to say, okay, what can we do now that feels authentic, that can bring you some peace? I want to get rid of the need for the last minute plot twist by working yes. on these things way earlier. And that's, I think this is the only way to do it. You almost need to be shaken out of the fear in order to step into the uncertainty and unknown. And again, I'll say it, working on your own sense of purpose and identity is difficult, painful, hard work. It takes a long time. It can be frustrating and it will tell you or ask you to question many of the things you might have held dear about monetary wealth and about status and about your work life and the importance of all those things. And so, yes, this is hard work and I'm asking you to do something very, very difficult. And I think it's going to be a little shocking. I want you to speak to anybody who's out there thinking, okay, if I did this, and thought about what I really value, it's just going to be this grand bucket list of fun stuff. I'm guessing that that's not necessarily what rises to the surface. Somebody's going to go, okay, yeah, I'm going to go skydiving, go to Mardi Gras, you know, go to an all-inclusive resort, that that's probably not top of the list stuff. So here's the thing. I think bucket list item is fine, are fine. But especially when you are young, if you look and think about what a living a good life looks like, It's pursuing things that give you a deeper sense of purpose and eventually connecting you to other people. And so here's the problem with bucket lists. Going skydiving, 
doesn't develop anything deeper inside you about your insights or beliefs or really accomplish any long-term goals. It's just a thing. It usually doesn't bond you to your fellow human beings. It doesn't change the world or help people. Ultimately, I think, and when I talk about this purpose and identity work, most of the time what I'm really saying is when you actually go that further step, and I didn't talk a lot about this in the book, but when you go those further steps, what you're really doing eventually is building a community of people around you that you can affect and help. Because ultimately, I think that's probably what human beings are meant to do is touch the people around them and do good things for them, right? Create a legacy, help the world, help people bring peace and joy and all those kind of things. So I think that's the ultimate goal. The problem with bucket list items is it doesn't really give you any deeper sense of knowing or knowledge or development or doesn't connect you to other people in that way. So I think it's fine to do all those things. But I think when we really look deep on the inside, what we'll find is those are fun diversions, but that most of us have a deeper sense of need or work to be done. And that work may start by feeling selfish, like, hey, I might go back to collecting baseball cards because that was really deep and important to me. But I really started thinking about this. Why, when I saw baseball cards every time on Facebook, did it bring back these warm, wonderful feelings in me? Well, I'll tell you why. When I was a little kid, there was an antique store And this guy at the antique store was buying antiques and happened to buy a bunch of baseball cards on the side. And a teenager walked into a store and said, I'll give you $5 for that 100 baseball cards. And the antique dealer said, great, $5, more than I thought I'd make. The kid gave him $5. He gave him all the baseball cards. Then the teenager looked at him and said, hey, guess what? This card here that you just gave me, that's worth 50 bucks. This antique dealer fell in love with baseball cards, started spying and selling baseball cards in his antique store. And when I was a lonely, unsuccessful loser of a kid, I'd walk over to this baseball card store and I had a community of people run by this guy who owned the antique store who was ultra supportive and wonderful and supported the kids in the neighborhood and us geeky kids could all come there and hang out and talk about the cards and have fun. And I started thinking about it. And maybe the reason I'm so connected to this is because this guy got into baseball cards, not because there was something special about baseball cards. It was the way he changed the world. And maybe that will be a way I change the world. Maybe I'll get back into collectibles. Maybe I'll create a community around that. Maybe I'll help someone. And so I think that's ultimately where we're heading. So you just don't get that by going skydiving. Yeah. I, I hear you on that. I mean, we're talking about, and we're going to do this in part two with you uh, coming up, you know, look at, talk about your personal interest and whatnot. And even on the bucket list stuff, let's say it is skydiving or something and the experience to think about leaving those like the movie where the old guys are doing it with their terminal diseases or whatnot. Man, these are the things that I would want people, I want for myself looking at now, these are the daily spices of life I want to be doing now. If you want to go skydiving, go skydiving. What is it? A couple hundred bucks or something like that? Go do it now. And these, instead of saving these, these delayed expectations that again, are probably arrogant to think you're going to make, make it in time to be able to do and be able to have the health and wellness and cognitive ability right now. These are the these are the spices of life that should be happening day in and day out. And let me let me guess something. So I haven't watched the Bucket List movie or whatever it yeah. will be. But let me make a vague guess. And I think this says a lot more about this. 
My suspicion is that the, in the end of the movie, what the people realized is that maybe it was the connection to each other that was more important than each of the bucket list items. Or yes. maybe it was the act of being brave and courageous and how they could use that knowledge to teach the people they were leaving behind. I mean, ultimately, when we get to even what we call bucket list items, I think a lot of times they're a conduit to something much deeper and more important. And we... We focus on this item, this place, this thing we want to do, but ultimately it's building ourselves into the character who has the characteristics who then can help others around us or create or build something more purposeful and important. And, and so that's my guess, yeah. and, and that's why I don't get too caught up in, in some of that bucket list item stuff. Well, Jordan, you end your book, and I'm going to land on this with time regrets. That at the end of it, I want to play with it though. At the end of it, people regret, they want more time. If they could have something else, it would be, you know, more time. But even that we're saying that so that what time so that I could do the things that I didn't do. And so now to come back up and go, why am I not doing those things? What you got me pondering was it's not a time issue. It's a priority issue because it, it honestly pisses me off about the culture and about myself that here we are. And we know this talk about, you know, cliche. I hope it's cliche for people to know that we have the conveniences, the technology, the shortcuts, the hacks, the whatever, that if our great, great grandparents woke up today with all that we have, it would take them about 15 minutes to accomplish everything they needed. <laughs> and the rest of the time they'd be going, man, I'm free to do whatever. I used to spend all day doing laundry. Now you just throw it in the laundry mat or heck you can just, you know, get on Amazon and get new clothes tomorrow. It's, you know, it's cheap. It, this is ridiculous. None of these time-saving things have saved us any time, period. They're not going to. And if we all got uh, a magic or got a genie in a bottle and said, I, I get an extra hour per day, I'm going to kick butt, man. Everybody else has 24 hours, I get 25. You're going to do nothing different than you are now. You're going to fill it with the same crap that you do today. And I'm speaking to myself as well. It is not a time issue. So even that, getting to the end and regretting time, it's regretting that I didn't make other things a priority. So how can I, you've got me reorient, reorienting back to that again of going, okay, I do want to list out what I would regret. If I got the six month diagnosis right now, what would I regret? Do that now, make it a freaking priority now, because we all have time. We all are going to spend some stupid amount of time on social media. Yeah, go with that. I, I was just going to say, you know, studies show that people have five to six hours a day of free time. Yeah. The problem is not time. I know everyone thinks it is and they want to buy time, right? They want to take their money and use it to give them more time. The problem is we don't actually know it's important to us. Once you know it's important to us, then we can fill our time with those things. But if you don't really do the hard work of finding out what's important to you, of course you're going to feel like there's not enough time. Even when you have it, you're going to piss it away on social media or watching TV or doing whatever you do. You've got to first figure out what's important to you and then build that into the immutable fact that time is, change, is passing and you have no control over it, right? So all we can do is figure out what activities that we choose to pursue during that time. And the only way to do that effectively is figuring out what activities you want to pursue, which is figuring out what's important to you. Uh, it's a wake-up call. Jordan, thank you. 
Um, thanks for what you did to bring the book to fruition. I'm grateful for whoever got it in front of my eyes because it's, uh, it feels timely even, yeah, with some of the overlapping messages from people like Arthur Brooks, it's, it feels timely for me from my time of life, but it's something that I want to bring. I wish we could get every you know, 20 year old listen to this right now before they, or before that, before they jump into college pursuing whatever for money, for the thing that they may be good at, but doesn't bring them fulfillment and to flip that. Maslow's uh, pyramid, in essence, flip it, flatten it, whatever, and start here. So I'm going to do my best to uh, embrace it for myself, for my family, and I'm excited to bring it to this audience. Thanks for being here, Jordan. Thanks for this uh, dramatically important message. Thank you so much. And I have to say, you know, I'm very thankful for my patients Mm. who were willing to share their life experiences with me and and tell me about their lives and what they regretted and didn't regret and allowed me in. Um, Because I think I can further their legacies. This, This message, this book that I wrote is actually the wisdom of all these people who gave me a piece of themselves before they died. And they will continue to live on, hopefully, in this knowledge as it gets out there and helps other people live fruitful lives today, not tomorrow, and certainly not when they're given a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Thank you, Jordan. Well, quite a profound message, and we have more to come in ensuing episodes. Jordan Grummet's book again is Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. And you can find him right now in your podcast app at the Earn and Invest podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Self-Helpful Podcast, where I strive to help you and me elevate our personal experience and the way we show up for others. Stay driven, my friends. 